the station manager was standing out there the left front. As I was about to release the brakes, he saluted. I returned his salute and could see tear tracks on his cheeks. His whole world was ending his job, didn't know what his family's disposition was or what the future held. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. In 1964, pilot Neil Hansen found himself unemployed. He began to send out feelers to several companies, including one that had placed an ad in the Washington Post called Air America. When he was called in for an interview, it primarily consisted of two questions. Can you fly good? And do you drink a lot? Air America was the airline owned by the CIA. Its operations were unknown, its schedules were irregular, its pilots were shadow people. It was the world of spooks, covert air ops, adventure and danger, and Hansen would be flying in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos and other locations in Southeast Asia. It could not have been a better fit for Hansen, an addicted adrenaline junkie. He would end up staying in Asia for over a decade and was fortunate enough to live to tell us about it in his book Flight. Cold War history is disappearing, but you can help preserve it with a simple monthly donation that will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because of the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. Do check out our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. I'm delighted to welcome Neil Hansen to our Cold War conversation. I answered an ad in the Washington Post for pilots overseas. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a wonderful chance to get the heck out of Dodge and get out of the free fire zone. And uh, I sent in an application and got a lukewarm reply. And I finally called him when I was back in Washington. H.H. Uh, H. Dawson was a personnel manager. And he says, oh, no, we're not hiring right now. Well, I figured that's a dead horse. And uh, I went back and started looking at all the stuff. But three days later, I was in Meg's Field in Chicago Lakefront waiting for passengers to come back to the airport. And I got a call to go to the airport manager's office. And when I got in there, they said, hold for a call from Mr. Dawson. Said, well, and he came on all happy, not gruff like he was before. And I uh, said, Captain Hanson, uh, do you still interested in working for us? And I said, yes, sir. Yes, I am. And he says, well, I got a couple of questions for you. Can you fly good? 
I thought, my God, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. I was tempted to say, no, I've, the wreckage is still burning, but uh, I didn't. And uh, he says, uh, I'll get the one more question. Said, you say, say you can fly pretty good. Uh, do you drink a lot? And I thought, well, maybe that's a requirement for this job. And I said, no, sir. And he says, well, can you be ready to go in 10 days? I says, well, when will I know if I'm hired? He says, oh, yeah, you're hired. That's because I called you. And I said, well, 10 days is a little sudden. Can you give me two weeks to let my employer have a good notice of this thing? And uh, I said, yeah. And uh, uh, I went back to flying for them, and I went down to the Detroit office to get a passport. And they said it'd take about a month. And uh, I said, well, I've got a job. I'm supposed to start here in two weeks overseas. And they asked me, well, who are you going to work for? And I says, Air America. I had the passport in four days. So that kind of <laughs> told me that something funny going on in the back room here. At that point, you had no idea what Air America was. You just thought it was some airline job overseas. That's right. And I'd looked in the AOG, the Airline Overseas Guide, and it listed one Convair uh, uh, 440, uh, uh dc-6 and a c-46 and i thought this isn't a hell of a lot of airplanes for an airline but on one of the last trips i took the lawyer one of the lawyers came at the cockpit while the co-pilot was serving drinks and uh, uh he asked me oh, i understand you're leaving and i said yes sir uh and he says who are you going to work for and i said air american he got a big smile and he says oh yeah the cia <laughs> and uh, he knew what it was well, that was a big boost in the ego department, and I had great visions of Terry and the Pirates and uh, all of those uh, comic strip things, James Bond stuff that was just coming out. And uh, it was far from the truth when you got to the reality of the situation. From there, of course, it was a waiting game for my tickets to come, and they were first class uh, to uh, Taipei, Taiwan. Uh, first segment was via Northwest Orient to Tokyo and then uh, by a cat jet, Convair 880, down to uh, Taipei. Wow, this is pretty neat. I'd never ridden first class before. There's just more booze and stews per passenger than the law laws. But I got to Tokyo and uh, thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to spend the night here. But no, they had a little gray uniformed guy to pick me up at the airport, take me downtown Tokyo, and uh, put me up in the New Japan Hotel. And uh, that was my first experience in the Far East. Uh, of course, went down to the lobby. It was a nice hotel. And uh, went into the little coffee shop there. And, uh, of course, nobody spoke English. But I could see the dishes in the front window and I pointed to those, and that's what I wanted. And they also had frosty, cold uh, Sapporo beer. And uh, that made my day. The next day, back out to the airport and out to the uh, cat jet on the ramp. That was before the days of the uh, uh, boarding ramps right from the terminal. And it was a magnificent bird. It... Uh, shine from many hours of polishing. There was a gold dragon on the side of it and calligraphy writing on it uh, saying civil air transport and the flag 
of nationalist China on the tail. So it was the flag carrier for the country. And from there down to Taipei, and then you get indoctrinated in. And you go through all of those mundane things, like another physical and the rest of that. The chief medical officer was uh, Chinese and a relative of Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, they uh, did a lot of different things as far as uh, physical, but it was valid. And uh, uh, from there, he went to Chinese ground school. So they wanted you to get a Chinese pilot's license mainly because the airplanes were registered in China. So if they were found somewhere they weren't supposed to be, they had plausible deniability on the thing. And uh, did that and uh, got to the ground school with the help of a a young lady in the first hotel. And uh, she taught me the etiquette in taking a a test with the uh, government there. And I followed all of her little nuances that, uh, handle papers with both hands and hand them back in with both hands, sit right in front where you're right in plain view of the examiner and dress like you're going to a formal business meeting. I did that. The other guys didn't. And uh, come to the end of that thing, I did pass it and I got my airline transport rating in China. The others took senior commercial and most of them failed. So anyways... <laughs> Due to that, I ended up, after some other gyrations, going down to Saigon. What were the other pilots like that had shown up at the same time as you? Were they a real mixture? Uh, Mostly retired military. And uh, they were looking to get some coin of the realm to bolster their retirement income, which was meager in those days. Now it's escalated to where they can actually live on it. Back then they couldn't. And they were the uh, the group that had attained the, the rank of major, which told you that they weren't good enough to get to lieutenant colonel. So they stagnated in that particular rank. And it was kind of the area where they, they wanted them to go the hell away. They had a bit of a chip on their shoulder, yeah? Yes. Yes, they thought they were better than the average bear. And here I am, a young guy in my 20s and the rest of that. and. Uh, they didn't think that I'd ever uh, be able to do that. But I also found out that these guys didn't have hardly any flight time. One guy from the Navy, he had 2,500 hours. I had over 5,000 hours by this time. And the fond the military did not get uh, the time that you would in civilian aviation. If you didn't fly 1,000 hours a year in civilian aviation, you couldn't make enough money to live on. And uh, they didn't have to do that. They flew their minimum of four hours a month and get their flight pay, and that was pretty much the end of the their flying for the month. And the rest of the time, hang out at the uh, officers' club drinking beer. <laughs> a lot of them really cringe at that. And, uh, but some of the MATS guys did get a lot of time. But uh, military air transport MATS, uh, they flew long-distance things. They'd make... Uh, uh, one takeoff and one landing and fly 10 hours in between. So there wasn't an awful lot of uh, manipulating the controls uh, in close proximity to the terra firma, uh, making takeoffs and landings. Uh, we did a lot of takeoffs and landings with Air America. I held a record in uh, four-engine transport 
21 legs in one day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah, not exactly FAA regulations, I would no. think. No, no. Uh, one month in 1965, I think it was October, I flew over 180 hours, which uh, wow. in a war zone, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So so what's the, the next stage of your induction to Air America? Where, where do you go next? I went from there back into Tachikawa, Japan, and flew DC-6s for Southern Air Transport Pacific Division, which was part of this huge conglomerate. You had Air America, you had Air Asia, Southern Air Transport Pacific Division. Uh, you, you had Arizona Helicopters. And these are all cover companies for the agency. Yeah, so they could do fu funny things with civilian-sounding uh, names. But uh, the Southern Air Transport thing out of Tashkawa was a lot of fun on the DC-6. But occasionally, you get down to Okinawa, and they pull the airplane over to the side of the Air Force Base, strip off all the markings on it. So they were just a plain, bare aluminum airplane. We'd come out at 2 o'clock in the morning, leave all your identification in the operations, get out the airplane, find it loaded with uh, uh, munitions and high explosives, and take off, and that was the last radio communication you made until you return, and fly 10 hours down into Southeast Asia. Uh, this, you did complete radio silence. You flew 500 feet off regular airline altitude, so you didn't have a mid-air collision, make a big bang, and land down there, offload it, turn around, come back the same way. When you're about 15 miles out of uh, Okinawa, Kadena Air Force Base, give them a call, and they'd simply clear you to land. They'd paint everything back on it, and away it went. Incredible. Incredible. And wh where were you flying to in uh, Vietnam? Was it like a regular U.S. Air Force base or, or somewhere more covert? No, we flew into all the little dirt strips and PSP and uh, membrane strips uh, that were there. I got down to Vietnam, and uh, at that time when I got there, there was 11 airplanes and 11 pilots. So I was very shortly on the line as a captain. One month after that, they made me an instructor pilot. I was checking out new guys. And uh, three months after that, they made me assistant manager flying for Vietnam. And I was in charge of the C-46 program, Volpar program, Dornier program. We even had a Piper Apache that I had to supervise in the C-46 program. And that made your life uh, nonstop on duty. Uh, it was hard to get out of there. I had a radio by my bed. So in case something screwed up, they could call me on the radio and get me out of bed and out to the airport to fix whatever was going on. And most of the time when that happened, uh, it was due to having what they called a black flight. Black flights were ones they didn't uh, usually put the uh, line pilots on. They put one of the supervisory pilots in charge of that thing, and you had to fly it. They were sometimes good and sometimes insane. Uh, something that had been dreamed up by a pencil pusher in D.C., sitting behind a desk, not knowing the difficulties that we faced out there, or uh, 
the things that had to be done prior to this had written this thing up and sent it in, and whoever was down in the embassy said, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> then we'd get tasked with doing that sort of thing. Uh, the first one I took was to smuggle a guy out of Vietnam and into Thailand, an American. And the strange thing about that was they said, go out and sit in the Twin Beach and wait for the embassy car to come onto the ramp and offload him into your airplane. But we want you to maintain the cockpit door closed and don't look at him. <laughs> Which, okay. <laughs> uh, finally, after about a half hour sitting up there in about 105 degree temperature in the cockpit, this black car rolled into the ramp. And whoever it was got out of the car and into the airplane with about 50 ramp workers out there. So I guess I'm the only one that's not supposed to see him. I don't know who the heck it was. It could have been Adolf Hitler as far as I'm concerned. And why smuggle him out of Vietnam into a friendly country? Uh, and I took off and had wanted me to file a flight plan. Don't worry about it. It's all laid on with the embassy in Thailand. And uh, when I got close to Bangkok, where I'd filed my flight then for, uh, I told him I'm diverting to my alternate. And I diverted to Tak Lee, which is a little bit further north of Bangkok. And it was a Royal Thai Air Force Base. Landed there, got him out of the airplane and uh, into another curtain black car, and they smoked off. And as I tried to taxi back out, a uh, Jeep with a fifty caliber on it pulled in front of me and leveled it at me. So there's a, a real procedure you got to follow when stuff like that happens. Get really stupid. And <laughs> where are you going? I'm going home. Where are you home? Saigon. Why are you here? I'm lost. <laughs> and uh, keep up with that sort of thing. Until eventually, about a week later, they let me go. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, I, I, I understand you, you were also acting as an instructor for yes. um, crews, and you, you had some some sort of interesting training methods to uh, make things a little bit more realistic. Yes, I would. I'd uh, set off firecrackers under their seat, and it just made them nervous and scared them badly, and they quit. So be it. I've probably saved their life. Uh, if they can't deal with the unusual or the bad strips we're going into, which were not FAA approved, and uh, uh, then you're, you're in the wrong place. Go home. And uh, I was radical in that uh, aspect of it. Uh, and my flight training was rough. It was kind of the Marquis de Sade uh, method of flight training and it worked and uh actually none of the people that i ever checked out in airplanes died because of something stupid uh they may have gotten shot or they may have flown into a mountain but they didn't uh do it because uh it's something i'd given them and uh, uh that i was kind of proud of really it was uh uh <laughs> A lot of fun in many ways, devising uh, things to check their metal. The FAA and everybody frowns on multiple emergencies. Uh, but in reality, 
All crashes are a combination of several factors, and it's not just one thing that killed the guy or the crew or the whole passenger load on board. It was several things that killed him, and they weren't able to cope with multiple emergencies, and that's what always happens. Just because you lose an engine doesn't mean you're going to lose your life. you got to keep working and thinking of what else is going to fail. Since the generator on that side and the hydraulic pumps are gone, something else is going to go wrong, too. <laughs> and uh, treat the airplane as a survival capsule. On takeoff, a lot of people, and they do this constantly, uh, particularly private pilots and things like that, they get off the ground and they bring the power back immediately, trying to save gas because it is expensive. But that's when engine failures occur at power change. Uh, leave it alone until you got some place you can put the damn thing and walk away from it. Uh, I don't care about running the engine at full power beyond the five-minute level. That doesn't uh, hurt a damn thing. The damn things were proven to that. Uh, when they built the engine, they had to test it beyond that point. So leave it alone. <laughs> Use the power. That's what it's there for. And that power will save your life and keep you out of trouble. Uh, there's one uh, large airplane that crashed due to that because uh, they only wanted to uh, save gas, and they only ran it up so high <laughs> they ran out of runway. Tell me about the $5 turn. Yes, the $5 turn was the captain sits on the left side of the airplane. The co-pilot sits on the right side of the airplane. So after takeoff, and particularly in Vietnam, in an area where you got hostile intent um, uh, shooting, <laughs> uh, make your turns to the right. So any bullet coming out of the weeds on the right side going to have to go through the co-pilot's body before it gets to you. And that was where this $5 turn came from. They were getting paid $5 an hour for hazard pay, and the captain was getting 10 <laughs> You know, you mentioned the firecrackers under the, under the seat as part of your, you know, your, your training uh, regime. Were there any other weird and wacky ideas that you came up with? Because I, I, I sort of find quite a lot of practical jokes in your book as well. <laughs> oh, yes, I did an awful lot of those. Uh, if you're coming into a short strip and you got a new co-pilot with you, uh, start screaming, oh, my God, my God. <laughs> that, that'll test his sphincter muscle. <laughs> uh, another one was coloring books. I'd pull a coloring book out of the gut my flight kit and uh, start coloring. And one of the load masters, in fact, he's retired out of the army now, uh, would say, hey, can I come up and color too? And I said, yeah, but you got to stay within the lines this time. And I was carried a coloring book and crayons and uh, flight kit. Yeah, because uh, you, you picked up a bit of a nickname, didn't you? Yes, weird. And <laughs> yeah, I had uh, some of the things I'd do did were not the same as what other people thought was normal. If you do something the same way every time, you're going to get in trouble. Uh, just like in hot drop zones and things like that, I would come in low and fast, pull up, drop, and get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, if you come up overhead outside of the range of the, the weapons that are around there and spiral down over it, 
these guys on the ground got a hell of a long time to figure out what you're doing and get a bead on you. So that didn't make any sense to me. Come in fast and low and pull up and get the hell out of there. Uh, drop your load and uh, away you go. And that worked for me except for one time. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come on to that in in a moment. One of the things I wanted to know is how how were the missions planned? What sort of intelligence did you have about you know the locations you were flying into? We had what they called FIC Flight Information Center which had maps on the walls and the rest of that. And uh, it was marked with known anti-aircraft weapons and uh, other notations, unfriendly strips that had fallen to the enemy. And uh, you'd get briefed by them and the, whatever intelligence they did have. Uh, you really shouldn't rely on that totally. Uh, also relied on word of mouth from other guys. Oh, my God, I saw a guy getting shot. I got shot at. Uh, at this trip off the south end. And, uh, yeah, take that in, even though it wasn't on the board. Uh, and, and that was probably our best thing, was word of mouth. And you know if the customer sent you into a place that was reportedly hot, the customer being a, a case officer, a CIA agent, uh, he wanted to get it in there because he was tasked with that area's security. That doesn't mean he was tasked with your security. He wanted to get it in there no matter what, whether you got killed doing it or not. And uh, uh, so you had to take all of this stuff into consideration and throw a couple of grains of salt in there and uh, uh, watch yourself. Because uh, you had the enemy and you also had the guys that might be lying to you. And that's where you could get really get in trouble. The Hmong that we supported in uh, Laos were wonderful, loyal people, and they didn't lie to you. But there were some that would lie to you, the, the Americans that were in charge of these areas. I think I read in the book there was, you know, if there were kids or dogs running around, That's you knew right. that, that a location was okay, whereas if it was deadly quiet like one of those westerns <laughs> right then, yeah there's uh, nobody in the street but tumbleweed yeah <laughs> then you, you knew it was probably going to be hot <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it would be hot and uh even with the kids running around and the rest of that uh, still be careful you know don't do anything silly there was areas we did drop in that were really uh calm and good and you can make a big racetrack type pattern to airdrop. Uh, the 123 in Laos that I flew primarily uh, was a great airdrop airplane. The back opened up like a C-130 uh, uh, and the ramp had rollers on it and they, the cargo would roll right out. And depending on the size of the area that you were dropping in, you could drop half a track on one side and do four passes or if it was big, you could salvo the whole damn thing and let it go out. And we ran into people with ideas of parachutes. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. 
So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, they came up with an idea that instead of having all of these smaller parachutes, 28-foot canopies, we could come up with a 100-foot diameter parachute and drop four pallets or four uh, loaded pallets at a time rigged to this thing. Well, that was a wonderful idea, except it had a lot of flaws. The 100-foot canopy sometimes would go out the back, and you had to drop it from 1,200 feet, which was pretty high, and it would stream for quite a ways and then finally open pop open, but maybe it wouldn't pop open where you wanted it to pop open. And if it did pop open early, it was at the mercy of the wind and it would go all over the place. And the other thing was with this pallet with four big drums of fuel or munitions or whatever, it sometimes broke and it was shotgun stuff out on people <laughs> below, which didn't make them happy at all. It, <laughs> No. Um, so what was the sort of tempo of flights that you were flying there? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, that you flew 21 uh, missions in, in, in one day. But what was the yes. normal tempo? Were you flying every day or? Uh, when In Vietnam, yes, you, you, I was flying every day. But in Laos, it was more of a controlled environment. And you had a regular schedule. And you could get 10 days off a month. And you'd go down to Bangkok and uh, uh, distribute your stress at the, the houses of pleasure down there. But uh, uh, the Vietnam thing was bad. You, you just really were tense and wound all the time. Uh, Laos was much better. But it was also a lot more dangerous, too. Uh, Laos, I really enjoyed because of the time off. And uh, I had a family at that time. I'd moved down to New Zealand. And uh, for 10 days, I could run down to New Zealand uh, and go out with the mates down there and get hammered and come on back and then really enjoy life because we'd get 75% discount airfares. And uh, that, that was a fun thing. But uh, Laos was a, a different breed of cat. And uh, we had a regular mess hall there and everything else. But there there was a lot of other things in Laos that were less uh, enthusiastic about. Uh, the uh, food was great. In all of these cases, in Vietnam and Laos, we were not military, so we did not eat in military mess halls. We had to eat off the local economy. And eating off the local economy brought you in close proximity to various things that would inhabit you. <laughs> and you make your walking a little bit different for a while. <laughs> but uh, uh, diarrhea was kind of a, a thing that was prevalent all the time. Yeah. An occupational hazard. <laughs> yes, it was. 
uh, very cautious on passing anything other than gas. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I just wanted to go back to Vietnam because I think at, at one point you find yourself in the middle of the Tet Offensive, don't you? Yes. Yes, that uh, uh, I had a, actually uh, the old Lao ambassador's house I was living in. And during the Tet Offensive, uh, uh, Tet normally had been uh, a tradition of fireworks and things like that. But due to the war, the Vietnamese government had stopped all of that. But this Tet Offensive, or Tet, uh, they relinquished and manufactured firecrackers and all kinds of fireworks, and everybody went a little crazy with that stuff. There was very little quality control in the out of their fireworks. Some of them would blow your hand off if you didn't throw the damn thing. But uh, in the middle of the night, Tet Offensive, I heard a rattle outside. Yeah. That wasn't fireworks. That was an automatic weapon. And uh, went up to the roof, and I had one of the other pilots staying there, and uh, we had uh, an assortment of weapons there. I had a Swedish K, which is a great air weapon, 9 millimeter. And I uh, got up the parapet on the roof, and we could see the tracers flying back and forth out at the airport at Tansanut and blooms of fire from inbound rockets. And... Uh, uh, that was not a, a good night. My radio came alive, and uh, they sent an embassy car with an armed escort in to get me, to bring me out to the airport. Well, oh, they wanted us to reposition all the airplanes. We did, just in case there was an inbound thing that would hit one of these things and light up the whole ramp. And we did have one hit on the ramp, and uh, it did uh, knock holes in one of the Beechcraft's uh, fuel tanks. We just drug it over to the side and left it there. Uh, some of the guys went and hid out in the uh, uh, pilot's ready room, which had been uh, actually an old uh, armored uh, room for uh, well, uh, explosives. And I didn't do that. I stayed up in the office and uh, would go out on the uh, balcony there and watch the firefight and you could hear shrapnel raining down on the roof and things like that. But in the middle of that, uh, just finally slacked off. And uh, we went back home, resumed a semi-normal life. There's so many amazing stories in, in this book, and I really recommend listeners to uh, check out the uh, the book because there there's... There's far more than we're going to be able to cover in, in this episode. But I think one of the ones that stuck out with me is I think you had some newish pilots and you had to pick up some body bags. That was on a training flight. And I'd run them through the mill and uh, uh, <laughs> deflated some of their egos pretty badly. But there was one really uh, good pilot there that uh, uh, eventually he ended up dying with cancer and in his 40s, but uh, went up to play coup, and uh, the military was there to ask if they, I'd do a favor, and I said, sure, and uh, they had some body bags to go back, and uh, I knew from prior experiences with body bags, don't leave them all zipped up, because if you do, as you climb out, the air in that's going to expand, 
and they may pop like a balloon and you're going to get sprayed with body fluids. So I tugged the little uh, zipper down a little ways and uh, put one of the guys up front to take it to Lake Gouda Graves Registration and uh, he took off and I put a bucket in the seat next to him in the co-pilot's seat. <laughs> I stayed in the back. Uh, one thing I found to avoid all of the uh, uh, inhuman smells is to douse a, a bandana with 4711 French cologne and right put it on like a bandit's mask. And uh, that would purify the air somewhat. And uh, he he made it to the top of the climb and before he had to grab the bucket. <laughs> uh, made a rather rough landing. And, but uh, uh, as a, we got there, he started, he helped him offload the bodies, which I thought was really a, a good thing. Uh, but he said, you know, I think I threw up the pacifier my mother thought she'd lost. There's a, a cast of lively characters in yes. in this book. Can you just sort of give us a few portraits of some of the, you know, the people that you were working with in, in Vietnam to start with? Yes, Roger, he was uh, he was a real winner. Uh, uh, he never turned anything down, and... Uh, he was an excellent pilot, and it's uh, just a shame that uh, his end came too soon. Uh, we also had uh, uh, a fellow that was <laughs> uh, an ex-crop duster out of Louisiana, and uh, he was really good in a single-engine airplane. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we had a lot of fun uh, together. And uh, he finally came up to Laos and was a co-pilot up there. But he wasn't a co-pilot that uh, really enjoyed that particular thing of getting into a big airplane. Uh, he did not enjoy that at all. And I gave him a lot of hard times. Uh, was ferrying some 123s out of Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And Don, he, he was very distinguished looking. Had a little touch of gray in his temples and all the rest of that. And, uh... But he was not very vocal. Uh, and in the officer's club there in Clark Air Force Base, I thought, well, now's the time to give, have a little fun with Don. And in the stag bar was crowded with officers in there, and they're all about to lose their commissions due to the end of the war. They're going to get what they call rift. And uh, I walked in there, and... Uh, Got a couple of beers, handed one to Don, and uh, I said, Gentlemen, please, can I have your attention? Would you like to welcome, welcome General Whitaker, who's here on a fact-finding mission? <laughs> All these guys are trying to honey up to him. He doesn't know what to say. And I promptly smoked it out of the club and went back to the barracks and <laughs> hit the sack. The next morning, I got up. He was supposed to be in the same room, and he wasn't there. Said, wow. Well, what the hell's going on here? Went up. The airplane was supposed to ferry, and he was sleeping in one of the troop seats. He was scared because he remembers in World War II that if he impersonated an officer, it was a shooting offense, firing squad. <laughs> he was terrified of that. He stayed wow. away from me for quite a while after that. Yeah, 
Yeah, I could see him not seeing the funny side of that, but that's uh, right. Yeah, wow, wow. So your next destination is Laos, and Laos is neutral at this point. That's right. It was neutral, but everybody was there. The Russians were there, the communist Pathé Lao, the uh, Red Chinese were there, uh, the Koreans were there, the Red Koreans. Uh, everybody, the bad guy side was there. Even the French were still there. Uh, but in town, nobody did anything to you. Uh, everybody drank in pretty much the same bars and the same places they'd go for uh, physical pleasure. And uh, outside of town, hey, you're fresh meat. And everybody was shooting at each other. The plane of jars had a potpourri of aircraft up there crashed. A Russian DC-3, even an American Cessna 195, uh, all sorts of airplanes, fighters, and bailed out and they crashed. They're coming out of Vietnam, North Vietnam. Uh, it, it was an eerie place, and it was well protected by the North Vietnamese. They had radar-controlled anti-aircraft weapons there, 23 millimeter, 37 millimeter, 57 millimeter, and uh, it was it would be a, a, a sparkle show if you tried to fly over at night. Also, they had radar-controlled weapons on the Chinese road that was coming down out of Yunnan province through Laos to Thailand, and that was well-protected. Two of our C-123s got shot down there, and we just recovered uh, one of the sets of bodies or uh, remains that were identifiable uh, just a year or so ago. Uh, the son of uh, the captain on that thing came by here, and we had a, a little get-together. But uh, the the other one is still out there somewhere. We haven't uh, heard of any recovery effort on that. But the weather was bad on that day, and we did not have any winds aloft reporting at all. We flew basically uh, a geometry problem, time and distance, a wind triangle, as they called it. And uh, the wind was well over what they expected. They said there must have been an 80-knot crosswind that blew them north of their course and up into the range of the Chinese radar-controlled weapons. And they got nailed in the soup, which is an awful way to go. Uh, the one we still haven't recovered, uh, the co-pilot had been a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, Jim Ackley was the uh, captain on that. And... Uh, uh, a special forces uh, kicker, you've been ex-special forces, was on board. And uh, that was a, a real shame and a shock. But just tack on another few degrees next time. Stay the hell away from that damn thing. Yeah. And how were you navigating out there? I mean, you know, everybody's used to sat-nav nowadays. <laughs> I know. But... But, you know, how are you finding these locations? Because you're flying over land that is a jungle or very heavily, mm -hmm. you know, mountainous. wooded. Yeah, mountainous. I mean, how were you – I'm just amazed at how you managed to find these locations. Time and distance. And then you'd let down as far as you could stand it, see if you break out. If you don't, go on back up, go home. Right, so you're flying in the cloud 
mm-hmm. most of the time, and then just dropping out of that to just do a quick check to see that's right where you are where you think you are. That's right. Okay, and then you've got to calculate versus the wind speed that might be pushing you off course. And yeah, you don't know then, what that is. Then- you don't know what that is. It's a uh, uh, basically a geometry problem, a uh, wind triangle, and uh, draw your wind out that you think is there. And uh, there was a an old handheld uh, uh, device called an ESXB, and you could. Uh, Computer heading on that, but uh, electronic wise, no, we had no nav aids, nothing. We didn't have radar coverage, we didn't have a damn thing. The Air Force had radar coverage up in there, but they didn't give it to us. Uh, every once in a while, you'd hear one of the Air Force birds call Blue Bandit in the barrel. Well, the barrel was Laos, a Blue Bandit was a MiG 21 or uh, one of the uh, North Vietnamese Russian airplanes into that airspace. They never did stay very long. Uh, those of us in big airplanes, we'd be in real trouble with one of those. The little birds could go down in the treetops and evade them. Uh, but towards the end, they came out with a new snake in the grass, and it was called a SAM-7, a Strela missile, and it was a heat seeker. Now, if you were 9,000 feet above it, it couldn't get a good lock on. If you were below that, it could get a lock on you. And we lost one of the birds, uh, one of the 123s over nearer up on the Confinam to one of those missiles. Uh, but there was one survivor, one of the loadmasters, jumped out of this burning airplane before the wing folded on it. And uh, he hit the ground and was only a couple kilometers in from Thailand. And... Uh, he saw some guys running towards him. He thought they were going to help him. Well, they started shooting at him. Well, that put wings to his feet, and he got to the Mekong River and swam across <laughs> and uh, got to the other side, which uh, they wouldn't come there. But uh, those were bad things. And well, it sounds like quite a high casualty rate when you were in, yes. in Laos. I mean, how many planes were you losing maybe a week or a month there? A month, usually one, but towards the end, it got really bad. We lost over 50% of our uh, C-123s. I had the only one that uh, I got the crew back. I didn't get the airplane back, but got the crew back. Yeah. And uh, what was it, about a crew of four in those? Yes. Uh, Pilot, co-pilot, and usually two loadmasters in the back uh, for airdropping, as we call them, kickers. Uh, that was a term that came from when they used to drop rice out of a C-46. They'd literally kick the pallets out the side of the airplane, push them out with their feet. I think this might be a good point for us to talk about the 6th of September 1972, Neil, don't you think? Okay. Yeah, that was a bad day at Flat Rock. Uh, everything was heating up in the war there. Uh, the... Uh, Area down around Pakse, which was in southern Laos, had uh, Lahai Mesa, which was called a Plain de Boulevards. And alongside that was where the Ho Chi Minh Trail came down through. And, of course, uh, we had fire bases up on this plateau and uh, sent teams out to try to harass this transportation uh, conduit going down to South Vietnam and into Cambodia. 
Well, those were very, very hot areas. And uh, I'd been tasked to go down there from what they called Pepper Grinder in Udorn, Thailand, which was an outfit that uh, supplied weapons and uh, munitions that be airdropped to various sites in Laos. Which, there again, that's a great violation. <laughs> uh, laws of the, the uh, neutrality of um, the country. But I got down to Poxe, and uh, there was two case officers there, tall man and gray fox. Gray fox had gray hair, and I don't know what his real legal name was. Tall man was a tall young fellow, and he was in charge of the area I was going to. Well, uh, I knew he would be lying to me, but... Uh, uh, the next morning, got out there to the airport and checked the load, and the load would tell you an awful lot of what's going on. It was small arms ammunition, claymore mines, and hand grenades. Well, that's frontline expendables. If it's artillery rounds, you know they're going to be booking those things way out there, and they're keeping the bad guys away. Well, I knew they weren't keeping the bad guys away. I was going to be down there giving stuff to the guys that were shooting those things off right away. Well, took off out of there, and there was, uh, our choppers were operating down there and waited for them to come in and out of the sites that I was going to drop at. And the first site, uh, they called the drop zone clear. I asked a little guy on the ground there to uh, throw a smoke out for me you know, so I could get the wind. And he did. Came in and made a couple passes and dropped one and a half tracks of munitions to him. The other one was only about 12 miles away. So rather than climb up out of there, I told the loadmasters in the back two ties, which were uh, really good, Sampop and Booma, and uh, just leave it open, and I'm going to overhead the next strip, and we'll drop this half-track and go home. And uh, they rogered that and uh, started over there, and I was going to make one pass over at first take a look at fair area they wanted me to drop in, I'd call for a smoke. And as I came up to the strip, or up to their site, he got on the radio and called, Big Bird, Big Bird, get out of here, get out of here. Triple A, triple A. Well, you tend to believe a guy. <laughs> he, you could tell he was excited and scared. So I poured the power to it, brought the jets up to 100%, and told him to close it up in the back and jinked on the way out. I didn't see anything. And uh, he was all excited on the ground. He says, come in west and go north. And uh, he didn't know what he was talking about, but he was scared. And when they're scared on the ground, I should be scared up here, too. But I asked uh, Sampop in the back, did you see anything? And he said, yeah, red balls went by the tail. Well, uh, there's various forms of anti-aircraft weapons. A uh, 50 caliber will be a green tracer. The bad guys use green tracers. Uh, if it's white hot, it's 23 millimeter. That's a fairly rapid fire weapon. But red balls are either 37 or 57 millimeter, and they're explosive rounds. So none of those really great. So uh, I headed on back uh, to Poxe. It landed there, and he was a tall man, was... All of a sudden, why didn't you drop? I said, well, he told me to get the hell out of there. <laughs> and, uh, I said, they, they say there's AAA there. And he said, oh, no, there isn't. 
Well, go on and tell that to the guys in the back. They saw red balls going by the tail. I knew he was lying to me. And uh, he said, well, I'll have them send out a patrol and sweep the area. Then would you go back? And I says, yeah. But I want some fighter cover. And I want some choppers standing by in case we have a problem. And uh, he says, well, boy, well, I'll do that. And I could tell he was not happy about that. Well, about an hour or two later, uh, said it was all done. They'd swept the area. There's nothing there. Okay. And I said, the choppers are going back now, and I'll go out and wait till they finish going in and out. Well, I knew the bad guys liked to get a big airplane versus a little helicopter. Well, they weren't little helicopters. They were fairly good size, but they wanted the big birds. And, uh, there had been a caribou shot down in that area, too, with the loss of the whole crew. And I went back there, waited for those guys to call in and out. Nobody's taking any fire. And I put right down on the treetops and just kept calling for smoke, 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 you know. I had a big bubble coming up there and stayed right on the treetops until I got in closer because the big weapon is pretty hard to swing a barrel fast enough to lead you to get you, to nail you. And as I got within about a half a mile of where the smoke was coming up, I pulled up to about 400 feet, and that's when they nailed me. And I lost the aileron control and tried to roll to the left into the jungle. And I wiped the power off the right side, and uh, she slowly came back. But the yoke was useless in my hand. I had elevator control, but no ailerons whatsoever. And uh, she rolled back and staggered out of there, shaking like hell. And uh, I asked the guys in the back, is everybody okay? He says, yes, Captain, but uh, uh, tail all broken, and both uh, wings are up in the back. I didn't know what he meant by that, so I sent my co-pilot back, who had frozen. He, he'd, uh, he was just scared to death, and I punched him, and uh, he went back, and he said, yeah, both ailerons were in the full-up position which was like turning half the wing upside down. That's why I wasn't climbing very well. I knew there was an old Japanese fighter strip from World War II, all overgrown, not too far away. So I headed for that. If I'm going to put it in the dirt, that'd be the place to do it. But the controllability of the thing was not that great. So I elected to do the loss of fuel. The fuel tank had been holed over there. I was streaming fuel. And the chopper says, I was trailing gas. Uh, I said, well, we're going to go for a walk. And overheaded that strip and uh, told the co-pilot, go in the back, wedge one of the doors open for me. And when I ring the bell, I want you guys to go. And uh, he did. He was just terrified. He had, we all wore parachutes. I always insisted on that. Uh, and got into the back and... Uh, was about ready to ring the bell, and he came back to the cockpit. Well, he wanted his camera. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, you can't hang out of that damn thing. And, uh, he went to the back, and I told the guys, if you, if you get away from it, throw it out the door. It's, it's going to be worthless. Ready to let it out again. And uh, he came back to the cockpit. He wanted his survival vest. Well, that's when I hit him, and he fell back down the ladder with his vest, and 
I told the guys in the back, take it away for a minute, throw it out. If he tries to put it on, his parachute won't open. It'll cover up the uh, back of his parachute. And maybe I should have let him put it on, but <laughs> I didn't. And uh, next time through, I told him, you guys got to get him out. I don't care what you do. Uh, if you can't get him out, you guys go. And uh, they said, no, cat, we'll get him out. And uh, I back, was back over it, rang the bell, and I looked back into the back, and Puma uh, jumped. And when Bill leaned out the door to see what was happening, sound popped behind him, took him right out. <laughs> they were gone, but I couldn't get out on that pass, so I had to make another pass. And uh, I exited stage door right. And I'd done some sport jumping before, so it was nothing new to me, except these World War II standard wrap parachutes are brutal. Uh, your canopy deploys first, and then the lines come tight. And it just, it made me about an inch shorter overall. I've got a crushed disc in my back due to that. And uh, ended up in some low scrub and uh, waiting for a chopper to come. And, yeah, he did come. And uh, as he flared in this little clearing, but when he did, he tail rotor hit some branches and the trees there and showered me with stuff and I thought, Jesus, don't fall on me now. This is not going to be a good day. But he picked back up and they dropped the sling and uh, I rode the horse collar up to the cabin and over to a canvas seat on the side of the uh, cabin area of the chopper. Across from me, there was a Lao soldier there and he had a puddle of vomit between his boots and uh, a bloody left arm crudely bandaged and uh, kind of knew how he felt. <laughs> we picked up out of there and it was shaking pretty damn bad. So we went down on this old Japanese strip and rolled to a stop and uh, told the crew, uh, kind of hoping for a non-stop flight, but they said they'd called for another chopper to come. And uh, we got out of it. Everybody had Uzis and, uh, hunkered down in the elephant grass around the chopper, and other chopper came in and landed about 100, 200 meters away from us. Yeah, what the hell did he do that for? We had to carry the wounded over to him. And he got over there, why did you do that? And he said, well, you guys are in a minefield. Well, <laughs> couldn't have been very damn good mines. I think it was probably old anti-tank mines or something else. But, the wounded we had on board filled him up and he had to take off and with them and head back for Poxe. But he said there was another helicopter coming for us. And, oh boy, you know, this has uh, uh, been a pretty bad day. I think initially, if I would have got a, a ride nonstop back to Poxe in the first chopper, I might have killed that guy. But I was starting to mellow on a little bit and see he was trying to maintain that area. And he was going to try to get supplies into him no matter what. Uh, not happy about it, but uh, I could see the logic there. And finally, another chopper came in, and we loaded into that and took off out of there, and the uh, doors opened, and I gave the uh, bad guys a one-finger salute and uh, got to the edge of the plateau of Bullivans, and he ran out of gas. 
as we were auto-rotating down there, a little village. Uh, didn't know if it was good guys or bad guys, but there was kids and dogs out there, so that was a good sign. But as he flared to come down this rice paddy, one of our uh, other choppers came out of Cambodia and pulled up alongside, and he had gun mounts on it, so that was my ride all the way back in. But uh, got in there, and uh, the co-pilot was there, and he just couldn't talk. He was still paralyzed, and uh, he needed some new underwear. <laughs> Found out that uh, he'd never jumped before, and so when he did jump, he came in like you see in the movies, and you think you can do like that. Well, there's a metal conduit that cable goes back to your pins in the back of the chute. And that binds, and it's kind of hard to pull. If you grab it and go straight down, it strips the pins right out, and it deploys. But it took him a while for that happened. It scared me a lot. Whoa. What, what sort of altitude were you bailing out at there? Uh, about 1,800 feet. So that's not a lot of time to no. open your, your chute? No. No, it's not. But uh, but he lived. But uh, I went into the uh, customer shack there where Tallman and uh, Gray Fox were, and Tallman was in there. I walked in. I had an Uzi in my hand, and he turned absolutely <laughs> whiter than that poster back sticker. And I just... Dropped the clip out of it, and I says, who's getting the beer? And he said, I will, I will. And he ran out the door, and Gray Fox said, you know, he probably won't come back. <laughs> probably very smart. Wow. Wow. I love it. There's a great photo in the book of the, um, is it the report of loss or damage? Yes. That you submit? Could you mm -hmm. just explain how that works? Well, you got to fill out a form like all government operations 10 copies in carbon well this is insane but i put on there everything i'd lost and some i had lost but <laughs> to get paid for and i included uh my coloring books and crayons and they did pay me for them <laughs> i think you you were involved in a number of evacuations was that in cambodia yes. or was that in laos in Laos and Vietnam and Cambodia, of course. Uh, Laos was not so bad. Uh, there, they'd uh, the soldiers wouldn't uh, shove the women and kids out of the way. They'd let the women and kids on first. Uh, one evacuations out of Longchen, which was 20 alternate, called the most secret place on earth at one time. Uh, I had 154 in the back. Uh, you had seats for 60. Wow. But just had to put straps across the floor and uh, uh, hang on. And and how did that affect the sort of flight characteristics? Having oh, we were way, like way overweight. But uh, I didn't care. Got to get the people out of there. I knew the airplane would fly. But uh, it's that or leave them to die. And that's that's not on my menu. You describe in uh, the book, I think, when, when you're shot down and you see your plane going down in the distance, you almost talk about it like it's it's a people. sort of like a, 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 a living thing. Yes, they are. Um, 
And and it's interesting because it's you know I've spoken to other pilots, and I've never flown a, mm-hmm. a plane, but it's almost like you know the plane becomes an extension of you in some way. It is because you are flying, you're manipulating the feathers and the wings, and you are flying it, and it is a being. Uh, there just seems to be a, a mystical thing that happens there that you become part of the airplane, and I always did. Uh, there's some people that just are truck drivers and they, uh, they don't become part of their airplane. Well, if you become part of it, you, you begin to know what the little nuances are in this bird. One, you're getting little clues that something's about to break on you. If you don't, you're just going to sit there fat, dumb, and happy and, and let it kill you. I'm not going to do that. Mm. Yeah, because you talk. I, I remember one of the lines you talk about in the um, in the book is about the the different sounds that you'd hear. Mm-hmm. So you'd know that there was you were reaching a a limit that shouldn't really be gone over. Yeah, there. you take it to its limits, and you can hear it moan and cry, and uh, you know that you're you're taking it beyond where it wants to be, but you can do it. Uh, it just takes a little finesse. Can you talk me through the last flight out of Cambodia and that day? Yes. Uh, Cambodia was a nightmare on wheels. I came up there from New Zealand and began flying there. And there was a lot of trucking companies that bought these old airplanes, some of them junk. Uh, They couldn't haul their goods across the highways in Cambodia anymore, so they went to airplanes. And... The Khmer Rouge were relatively close to uh, uh, Phnom Penh. In fact, the road between the airport and town had been zeroed in. I lost a co-pilot there. Uh, he was in the back of a, a, a station wagon, and the round went off behind him, and shrapnel killed him. But uh, I flied, uh, flying a C-46 or a Convair 440, but I lost an engine on the thing. And I started flying a C-46, and it was junk. But I flew that thing uh, out of a coastal town hauling rice, which was good, uh, but not as hot as Nam Pen. Yeah, but letting down into a strip north of Nam Pen, I heard a bang in the back, and I knew what the hell that was. A uh, Chinese co-pilot I had didn't know. And he said, oh, car- cargo fall over. No, we just got shot. And uh, got on the ground, and on the right wing, there was a bullet hole four inches from the fuel selector valve up to the top of the wing and through the cabin and out the other side. Well, it was 50 caliber uh, round, but I didn't want to sit around on that strip too long because that had been a bad area. The leaders of the town there had all been decapitated by the Khmer Rouge and their heads stuck on fence posts up there. Uh, for the birds to eat. But went down to Kampong Sam, nice coastal town, no problems there. But walked around the thing, and uh, yeah, that's bad damage, but came up to the left side, and uh, like most pilots, you grab a hold of the propeller blade. Well, it moved front and back. It was loose in the hub, and that was the source of all our vibration. So that was the end of that one. It was about ready to lose the blade, and of course, it would have tore the engine off the wing. And picked up a Convair, Convair 440. Nice airplane, Anchor Watt Airlines. I was over in uh, 
uh, Battenbaum, and uh, a friend of mine was there with his conveyor, and he had a flat tire, but he was getting it fixed, and we could hear a fifty caliber hammering away, firing outbound. Well, that means the bad guys are pretty damn close. And a Cambodian lieutenant came up to us, and he says, you know, all Americans go home. Really? <laughs> I said, no, we didn't know that. He says, yes, they bring in helicopters. They take all our generals and our embassy and government and your people, and they leave. Oh, boy, this is not a, a good sign. So they left the troops in the field to be part of the spam sandwich for the enemy, which is a bad deal. And I told Phil, this is uh, the 16th of April, uh, I'm going to go down to Complex Home, spend the night. Tomorrow I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to Bangkok. And he said, well, I'll come down and meet you there, but i got to pick up my wife in Phnom Penh. Well, I went back down there, spent the night, and the next morning there was a Chinese crew staying there and having breakfast there. And I said, you know, it's getting pretty bad out there uh, with uh, Khmer Rouge. And Chinese captain, he was kind of a wise-ass. And uh, he says, yeah, for you long-nosed, round-eyes, yes. Uh, but me, Chinese, no problem. They don't shoot at us. Okay. <laughs> but the co-pilot, I knew him, and I told him, hey, if you want to, just climb on board us because I'm going to leave today at noon. And uh, he said, no, he's got to go with him. Uh, we went out to the airport later, and they'd already loaded cargo and passengers on board. And uh, I taxied it out. Turned the mags on and off during the road, run up, made a backfire, and came back and told the station manager, no, no, uh, I'm going to have to test fly it. going to have to offload the cargo and passengers. And he kind of looked at me funny, but he did. And the noodle stands on the ramp were starting to disappear, and that's kind of a normal thing around the airports in Southeast Asia, pedicabs and noodle stands and things like that. And. Uh, they're, they're packing up and going home. It's now coming up on 10.30. And I promised Phil I'd stay there till noon. This is still not looking good, but to the north, it was a low-line uh, range of hills, and the road from the north came right down through a little gap there, a dirt road. So if I see dust coming up off that, I'm history here. But still nothing. And uh, I got the steward, and steward is, uh, steward was one of the uh, owner's relatives, and the stewardess was, I think, 14 or 15 years old. Poor little gal. But I told him we're going to be going to Bangkok. If you want to go get your belongings and come back, uh, fine, use the station manager's Land Rover, go on in and get it, and they all could, could, and they smoked into town to get their belongings and sat there. And it's now starting to get kind of spooky out there. The last little noodle stand closed up, and it was hooked on the basket, a bicycle, a little Honda 50cc, and he took off on that. Wow. 11 o'clock, really getting eerie out here. The Cambodian military was still there, and I went over to them and uh, told them, uh, 
are you going to go into town? Can I get a ride? Oh, no, 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 we don't do that. And he was scared of being seen with an American. And he took off, and so did all his troops. And uh, this is not a happy deal. The old broken-down C-46 over there by Convair. Uh, quarter to noon. Uh, Land Rover came back with Stewart and Stewardess. Looked like they'd been driving an Indy 500, and they skidded to a stop behind the airplane. Uh, he came, we go, we go, we go. No, no. Before that, the DC-3 that had gone up towards Dom Finn before with the Chinese kept, he came back in, and he was all scared. He said, they shot at me. Well, what did you think? <laughs> and they smoked off for Thailand, too, before me. But uh, yeah, it's getting really eerie out here, and I got the station manager's side, and... Uh, Told him we're going to go to Thailand. You come too. They said, no, Captain. My family, Nam Pen. Can't argue with that. I would have heard known what was coming. But we didn't at that time. We didn't know that 1.7 million Cambodians would lose their life in the Holocaust after. But, coming up on noon, I'd already pulled a chocks on the bird, told guys to get on board. My co-pilot, he really wasn't a pilot. He was a Filipino me propeller mechanic that had bought a license. He didn't want to fly. But uh, got uh, got him on board, closed up the hair stair door like an insect pulling its leg in, cranked up the right engine. It came up to brook temperatures and pressures, and then the left engine. The station manager was standing out there, the left front. I think he'd just seen this stuff in a movie or something, and. Uh, as I was about to release the brakes, he saluted. I returned his salute and could see tear tracks on his cheeks. His whole world was ending. His job didn't know what his family's disposition was or what the future held. Taxied out on the runway, and um, not going to bother to run it up. I'm going to go. Still no Phil. He still hadn't shown up. Poured the coal tour and rolled by the ramp about 90 knots. He's still standing there. 100 knots came off the yoke, or off the nose wheel steering and onto the yoke. 110 rotate. She came off Cambodian soil for the last. But that was beginning of another escapade. Once got off the ground, headed over to intercept the airway. And uh, 
called on emergency frequency if somebody had relay a flight plan for me. And uh, Lufthansa 693 came out. And uh, he was coming out of Hong Kong, down to Bangkok. And uh, he relayed a flight plan for me to Bangkok. And uh, he says, you know, Cambodia has fallen. Air place is closed. Yeah, I know. Well, got to Bangkok. Well, I've got no passport that's still in Phnom Penh. I've got $20 U.S. bill, and I got a whole briefcase full of Cambodian reels. Uh, the biggest note they had was a 100 reel note, and it was green and had hundreds in each corner. Looked pretty neat, except it wasn't worth anything anymore. <laughs> I got there dawdled around waiting for the gendarmes to come out, arrest us, and no, they didn't. Finally, let the air stare down, and everybody got out. We're all in uniform. So this is pretty good. Nothing. Nobody's come out here to arrest us or escort us into the terminal. So I got everybody together, told them, just follow me. Do not say anything. I will talk. And went into the uh, terminal, just like supposed to, as a crew. A uh, guy at the or the uh, shot record desk, the health desk, uh, he just looked up and saw we're all in uniform, just to let us go right through. And uh, there's nobody at the immigration desk, but except there was a, uh, a big window, and they were all sitting in there. The uh, main guy, he looked up and saw me and waved me in. Well, I'd still had an old Air America ID card. As I came in there, he says, manifest, please. And I says, I'm all out of them. I don't have any. I've only got this. And I showed him my Air America ID card. Well, he handed me a set of manifests with carpets. <laughs> I filled it out. He stamped it. And we smoked right out of there. But uh, the next problem was taxi. Got everybody in the taxi. And uh, I wanted to go down to... Uh, Sir Wong Hotel down near Pat Pong Road. And uh, I didn't have any money to pay him. But as we got down there, the co-pilot and I got out, and the uh, uh, steward and stewardess, they, they knew some people in town that were going to go there. I said, you take them where they want to go. But I only have a 100. I folded it up so all I saw was the numbers, 100. <laughs> Bill. And Creed overtook his reasoning, and he snapped that up, and we went one way, and he went the other. <laughs> he probably found out it was a useless piece of paper later on. As a captain, I now owned that airplane, but I didn't have any money to put gas in it. And it was Lao registered, so it wouldn't be anything any good in Thailand. But uh, there was a, a watering hole there, and... Uh, on Pat Pong Road that all the pilots hung out in. And I went in there, and uh, part of the royal family was there, Fred Spagna, and his uh, accountant, a Filipino accountant. And uh, he says, where you been? I says, Cambodia. <laughs> and he says, there is no more Cambodia. I said, yeah, I know that now. <laughs> and he says, you want to work for me? And I says, yeah. Yeah, that'd be nice. And... Uh, 
but I, I don't have enough money for gas for the airplane. And uh, his accountant opened his briefcase and gave me about $9,000 in real money so I could pay the bar there <laughs> and buy gas and uh, communication fee and all the rest of that sort of thing. And uh, next day, headed up to Vinchen. And he made me chief pilot of their race drop program up there. Playing uh, one of the old Air America C-46s, which was great fun. Except they started putting uh, a little guy in uniform with a red star in his hat and a pistol in his belt and a jump seat in the cockpit. Ah, boy. This is not going to be a good, good ending. So I eventually ended up just yeah, bribing a border guard and taking a boat across the Mekong to Thailand. And landlocked and I am to Anchorage, Alaska. And that was the saddest day of my life. The world I knew so well, people had lost, uh, they're still there. I didn't know what was in front of me. Neil, I really um, appreciate you sharing your story. That was incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for um, for sharing that with us. And Neil's book doesn't end there. It no. carry. I mean, we we've barely scratched the surface in this chat. There's Alaska. There's uh, a change of identity there's a jail term there's farming in arkansas there's other flying experiences there mm -hmm. so the the book is called flight an air america pilot story of adventure descent and redemption there will be links in the episode notes as to how to buy that it's also available as an audio book read by our guest today as well so uh, well worth a read or well worth a listen. But Neil, I am extremely grateful for you coming on and sharing those stories with me. Thank you. Well, we're trying to make as much noise as we can because the end result after all of this, due to the secrecy agreements we'd signed, we got no credit for service uh, over there, uh, nor did some of the guys who got killed. Their families were just not even told in some cases which is not right. But there is a bill in uh, Congress right now to rectify that. Uh, I'd like to see it come to fruition, but who knows? Uh, when you start dealing in politics, it's kind of a crapshoot. And uh, you're not the House. <laughs> you're just one of the players. Yeah, and at the, I mean, the, the back of the book has the list of your comrades who never made it back mm -hmm. and so the book is is a tribute to them as well and making sure that they've not been forgotten that's true there's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes which will show as a link in your podcast app now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters, and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. 
If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information